Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast. My name is Nathan Brush, your host, and this is a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. Today's guest is Tessa Clark, co-founder and CEO of Olio. Olio is on a mission to tackle the huge problem of food waste by connecting neighbours with each other and with local businesses so surplus food can be shared and not thrown away. Olio has 3.6 million users in more than 50 countries around the world, with Tessa and the team constantly innovating and adding new features to help us build a more sustainable future. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review in your podcast app. Let's go. Tessa, hello and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Great to be with you. So we'll start, as we do with every episode, by asking you the question, what's the wrong you want to write? So the wrong that I would like to write is the horrific problem of food waste. So you might or might not know, but globally, a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away, which is worth over a trillion US dollars. And then alongside that, we have 800 million people who go to bed hungry every night, who could be fed on a quarter of the food that we waste in the Western world. And as if that weren't bad enough, the environmental impact of food waste is nothing short of devastating. So if it were to be a country, food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. And then when you kind of dig into the problem of food waste specifically, it's really quite shocking to discover that in a country such as the UK, half of all food waste takes place in the home. So that means that that big problem that I've just shared with you, each and every one of us, we are responsible for half of that. But if you flip it on its head, that actually can be quite exciting because it means that surely we can be half the solution as well. When when we hear these numbers, it's always so shocking. And I guess one of the things which is shocking for me, as you say, is almost in a country like the UK, where we have the most supply, we have the most available to us, we're, always, we're like the most wasteful as well it's like that for me is like is is almost the one of the most depressing parts of it yeah i mean i guess it's not a surprise though really because for many people and we should be really really clear that there's a big chunk of people in the uk eight million uh, to be precise who kind of struggle to access food but for those who don't I think that's part of the challenge we have such an overabundance of food that we don't value it anymore And so people don't think twice about chucking something into the bin. But that is, you know, for all the reasons I've described, absolutely a very wrong thing to be doing and and just kind of morally, socially, and just on a very practical level, food is quite literally our life source. And so it's really crazy that we waste it at the scale that we do. And this is going to become even more of a pressing problem because we've got another 2.2 billion people joining the planet by 2050. And in order to feed us all, according to the FAO, we need to increase global food production by over 50%. And today we have absolutely no idea how on earth we're going to achieve that. And so to me, it just seems really crazy that we're sat here kind of scratching our heads, puzzling over how we can feed a population of 10 billion people and how we can halt sort of runaway planetary heating whilst continuing to throw away a third of all the food that we produce yeah completely and as you say i think is the really important thing here is for people to start seeing food waste as part of the problem but also part of the 
the solution to the sort of bigger environmental climate challenges that that we face. Um, when it comes to the work that you're doing then, can you give people, uh, uh, I guess, a brief sort of introduction to, to Olio and how you're looking to solve it, this challenge? So Olio's an app that exists to tackle the problem of food waste, specifically in the home and at a local community level. And how we do that is by connecting people with their neighbours so that you can give away rather than throw away your spare food. Because what we've discovered is that people don't enjoy throwing away food, but the challenge is that nowadays we're so disconnected from our local communities that we don't actually have anyone to give our food to. And so that's what Olio aims to do is provide a really fun, safe and easy way for you to connect with your neighbours so that you can give away your spare. And so how it works is you just snap a photo of your spare food, you add it to the app, neighbours living nearby get an alert, they can then browse the listings, request what they want and pop round and pick it up. And one of the most sort of common questions we get or concerns from people is, well, will anyone really want my spare food, my sort of head of broccoli or my three out of date tins of soup or whatever it might be? And the answer is a massive resounding yes. So half of all the food added to the app is requested in less than 21 minutes. So our biggest challenge actually is, is encouraging everybody to take this of 10 seconds or so to share their spare rather than toss it in the bin. And what's behind that? I do find the sort of behavioural aspects of this really interesting. What do you think is behind that misconception that people have that, oh, no one's going to want this spare food that I've got? What's driving that? I think it's because we very instinctively tend to assume that everybody else is like us. And so if I don't want this, then it's very easy to assume that no one else will want this, right? Um, So I, I think that's kind of the major driver um, and then I guess people, you know, food is quite personal. So you are just by very virtue of having something spare, there's a story and a reason behind that. Uh, and so, you know, definitely kind of reveals something about yourself in, in some way. But I, I think it's really that former thing, the, the fact that we, we find it hard to imagine how different people might approach a situation. And how do you see with the people who people who start using the app, how do you kind of see their behavior change and develop as they start, I guess, interacting uh, with the app and actually start giving away stuff and picking up stuff from the community? What, what do you kind of see as the shifts which then start to happen? So we see quite a few shifts take place, actually. So when people first join Olio, they're generally really, really excited because there's nothing else like Olio out there. And often people will start off picking something up because that just feels like the easiest first step. You just open the app, you see something, you want it and you can request it and then pop around and pick it up. We find that once people have had that first experience, they get to meet a neighbor, they realize that that was actually quite fun. It was pretty straightforward. It was normal. (laughs) Um, And after they've had that experience, they will then tend to go back to their own homes and evaluate what they have spare that they no longer want or need that they can then go on to share. So a lot of people start off picking stuff up and then they go on to give away stuff themselves. I think in terms of the other behavior shifts we see, pretty much um, it's across the board. People tell us that once they've started using Olio, it really opens their eyes to the problem of not just food waste, but waste more broadly. And as a result of that, they start to proactively lead a less wasteful life. 
and they just start reducing waste across all elements of their day-to-day living. And I should say that Olio also has a non-food section, so you can use that to give away books, clothes, toys, kitchen appliances, everyday household items. And that's proving to be really, really popular as well, because this is for stuff that you don't want to sell. You don't want to ship it across the country. You just want to tap a button and automatically a happy neighbor shows up and, and, and takes it off your hand. So there's definitely that kind of transition into leading a more mindful and less wasteful life. And then I think the third thing that we see happen to people is our users tell us that when they join Olio, they joined Olio because they don't like waste. But once they've used Olio, what they infuse about most is the community. It's not actually sort of, you know, Olio looks like it's an app, but it's not. It's really a community. And people tell us that that is what feels really special and really different because they're getting to meet their neighbors in a way that they never would have. And as a result, they're starting to feel more connected to their local community. They're starting to recognize that small actions can make a pretty big difference. And people tell us they just feels very empowering and fulfilling. Yeah, it's really interesting because uh, there's some interesting contrast here. I'm, I'm being followed around the internet at the moment by adverts for a new sort of delivery, local delivery service. Where oh, don't get I can... me going on these. <laughs> I won't name, I won't name it's, it. Well, so, so, it solving a problem that really, you know, I, I get very frustrated with these sort of, you know, you can get your groceries now in less than 10 minutes. And I'm like, wow, talk about sort of solving a problem that didn't really need solving whilst we have literally the planet is on fire <laughs> and, and we have so many other enormous problems that need solving but anyway sorry smaller side there tell me you're being stalked around no but, but yeah I've been followed around by this so yeah it's like oh you can get your groceries delivered in in 10-15 minutes and it's like but I also which seems crazy to me because I've got probably 20 shops within five minutes walk of me where I can go yeah. and pick something up but it almost seems like it's so easy to to grab somebody's attention and to I guess to make something just a little bit easier for them. But you're trying to wake people up to a much bigger problem. Well, we are, and and I, I think sort of if you think about that sort of ten or fifteen minute groceries, that is stopping you from taking some exercise slash movement slash getting out in the open air. It is stopping you from sort of meeting people and connecting and building relationships locally um but but it is extremely convenient right so um whereas i think olio is slightly less convenient but we're definitely kind of off the charts in terms of solving a a real problem that we desperately need to see solved yesterday and building meaningful relationships and stronger local communities so i like to think that kind of net net the world is a significantly better place as a result of each and every person who joins Olio. Yeah, and and I, and I think the, the the community side of it is really interesting. I think like I guess it's I guess it's, it seems like it's twofold for you really. It's the community that you're building to sort of spread the word about Olio as a as a service, but then it's also the actual the offline community. It's people meeting each other, meeting their neighbors who they've lived next door to for ages and they've never had a reason to connect with before. Yeah, so we you're right. We a really important part of Olio are our volunteers. So we have two types of volunteers. We have our ambassadors. So they're people who are really passionate about the Olio mission. They want it to work in their local community. And so we give them all the tools that they require to get Olio kickstarted in their local community. And that is a combination of both digital content that they can share, but also kind of old school, hyper local guerrilla marketing tactics. So posters and letters and flyers. 
and so and our ambassadors definitely have a, a strong sense of community um, both amongst themselves but also feeling that they're really helping make a difference to their own local community through bringing olio there and then the second type of volunteer we have are our food waste heroes so we've now got 25,000 trained volunteers who we match with their local store which could be a supermarket or a bakery or deli or corporate canteen and those volunteers provide a service to that store whereby at the end of the day they'll pop out their house across the road they'll collect all of the unsold food from that business they'll then take it home add it to the app within minutes that your neighbors are requesting it and minutes later they're popping around and picking it up interesting yeah well so to very immediately tackling the problem of stuff which is already in the shops but will just immediately go in the bin and not even be bought by anyone yeah so it's important, I guess, to kind of put that into context and to look at why we're doing it. So Olio exists really to tackle the problem of food waste in the home, which is where half of all food waste takes place. And actually just retail stores account for just 2% of all food waste. But what we found is that through matching our volunteers with those local stores and bringing that supermarket, for example, surplus food onto the app, then really gets Olio kickstarted in a local community because it triggers all the notifications, which brings people into the app. They pick something up, they have their experience, they meet a neighbor. And it's really the flywheel, um, or, or I guess the fire starter of then that local flywheel. I see. Well, yeah, one of the questions I had down to ask you was about what have you seen as the best tools or the best channels or the best communications to drive growth of the app over the past, I guess, is it, is it sort of six years now since, since yeah. you launched? Yeah. What, what, what have been those things? Maybe that is what, what you've said there is part of the question of where you've found to, to be able to drive that growth. But are there any other, um, I guess, things you've learned from that perspective? So our ambassadors, I've already mentioned, play a really, really critical role in getting Olio launched all over the country and all over the world. So we've had items successfully shared in 59 countries so far. And that is really down to the fact that we're empowering passionate people to get Olio kickstarted near them. So our ambassadors have been a really important lever of growth. The Food Waste Heroes program has been really important. And a, a big breakthrough for us was last year, we were uh, sort of made an agreement with Tesco to scale across their whole store portfolio. So we are now collecting and redistributing across their 2,700 stores to um, enable them to not be throwing away so much food. So that's been a real engine of growth. And PR has always been really important for us. And then in terms of paid marketing, it's really been performance marketing to date. And more lately, we've also been experimenting with TV as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, so a, a big mix. That's interesting. You mentioned about Tesco there as well, I guess. Are we seeing now some of the biggest companies and corporations sort of finally sort of waking up to their sort of responsibility to in, in when it comes to these problems? We are, thank goodness. Um, so I have to sort of take my hat off to Tesco. They have been real pioneers and leaders in this space. It, it did take us three years of conversations to kind of get it over the line, but they are really, really leading the industry in terms of making very public commitments to eliminate food waste from their business. And they also measure and report publicly on their food waste. And they have really kind of pushed forward in terms of working with innovative solutions such as Olio. And we're seeing that approach actually now sort of cascade 
through the industry. And I think the best way to describe the change that's happening is via analogy. So in the fashion industry, for example, child labor was pretty endemic, uh, but it has now been sort of measured and monitored as far as possible, kind of you know, largely out of supply chains. It's no longer acceptable to have that happening in your business. And the same is now starting to happen, thankfully, around food waste. It is no longer acceptable to be seen to be throwing perfectly good food in the bin when there are so many people living nearby who would like it or maybe even need it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I guess, yeah, increasingly you're seeing people will start to make more decisions based on what they see as a company's impact on society, not just the the, the products that they make or or what they're selling. I think um, interesting there as well, you kind of mentioned about, they sort of alluded to the the sort of transparency that is required. I guess, what have you been able to measure so far about the impact that Oleo's had and all the food that has been has, has not been wasted and has been, been reshared? I think you're absolutely right that measurement is really, really important. So that kind of, I guess, gives people comfort, but also inspiration that the actions that are being taken are having an effect. So for Oleo, we know that to date, we have shared over 18 million portions of food and the environmental impact of that is equivalent to taking 52 million car miles off the road which apparently is equivalent to driving all the way to mars and halfway back so um, an awful lot of car miles have been taken off the road in terms of environmental impact and then in terms of our water impact we have saved 2.6 billion liters of water as a result of saving this food and that's because food production is incredibly water intensive so actually three quarters of all of humanity's fresh water supply is used in the food production industry wow no, that's really interesting um i had a, I had a couple of other things jotted down and i think obviously everything at the moment comes back to a bit of a reflection on the last sort of 12 months and i guess there's been a couple of things like i was thinking on the way in about the empty supermarket shelves which we had in like I guess like middle of March when lockdown was seemingly sort of pending or coronavirus was, was on the way. Did that have a, a an, an impact in our sort of like understanding and thinking about, about food, do you think? It absolutely did. There's that saying that a picture says a thousand words. And in my mind, this is a classic example of that because people, we sort of collectively realised that food is valuable. And we felt that in a really kind of visceral sense because we felt some nerves and some anxiety about our ability to access food, which for many people in this country, that was the first time. And so almost overnight, we saw just a step change in terms of how people were valuing food. And so there's some research by an organization called Hubbub that showed that over 50% of people said they were valuing food much more. And as a result, they were also wasting food a lot less. Mm. Yeah, it's just it's just always really stuck with me. And then I guess like what then happened with the sort of free school meals and various government decisions and then U-turns and all the campaigning, which Marcus Rashford and various other people were behind, I guess that 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 shone a light. And as you alluded to at the start in this country, we have this massive surplus, but it's not necessarily getting to the right people. Well, we, we have two problems that sort of coexist alongside each other. So we have the food waste problem, which we've talked about quite a lot. And then in parallel to that, we have a hunger problem. And this was something that I must admit, 
you know, when, I, when Sasha and I first founded Olio, we were not aware of that. And we have since been really, really horrified and deeply saddened to learn just how much hunger there is in the UK, a supposedly, quote unquote, developed country. Um, so as I said earlier, we've got eight, well, this is sort of pre-COVID figures. Um, in the UK, we have 8.4 million people living in food poverty. And all the data shows that sort of post-COVID, those numbers have grown quite substantially. So that is a really, really significant portion of our population who are struggling to access food. But I think it's really, really important that the two issues aren't conflated and that we aren't very simplistic about this and think, well, why don't we take all this waste food and give it to all these hungry people and we can solve these two problems and we can all live happily ever after. That is a dangerously simplistic approach for a couple of reasons. So first of all, if you look at the food waste problem, there's kind of 10x more spare food than there are hungry people. And so actually, if we're going to solve the food waste problem, we need um, many more kind of structural changes and we need everybody to be involved. And we cannot risk it being kind of stigmatized and and the responsibility given to sort of hungry people to solve that problem. Um, So we're not going to solve the problem of food waste with hungry people. And then on the other side, if you look at the problem of food poverty, the answer to that is not random handouts of surplus food. That is about a proper, you know, solving that is about a proper living wage. It's about um, a much more equitable and fair and accessible society for all. And there are many other, again, kind of systemic changes that need to happen to solve the problem of hunger and food poverty rather than just random food handouts. No, that's really interesting. That's really insightful, as you say. It's a yeah, it's a complex web of of different factors. I guess have you had maybe that, as you say, is one of the sort of biggest learnings that you've had as early as grown and developed. What have been your other sort of biggest biggest learnings over the course of, of growing the business and tackling this 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 problem? Um, I think most of the learnings that I've had really kind of other than the ones that we've covered on about sort of the size of the problem of food waste and hunger and stuff like that have really been about how to sort of start and then scale an, an early stage business. And um, for me, I think probably the most powerful learning has been the importance of as quickly as possible getting product out into market, into the hands of users, and then test, measure, learn, and just doing that feedback loop as, as quickly as possible. I think the other sort of major, somewhat depressing learning has been that there's no such thing as a silver bullet. I think in the early days of a startup, you constantly live in hope that the next feature or the next marketing campaign is going to be the silver bullet that sends you into stratospheric growth. Uh, and in our experience, we've learned that mm. unfortunately there is no such thing as a silver bullet. There's just a shit ton of lead bullets and you just got to keep on kind of layering stuff on top. <laughs> and then cumulatively, um, that starts to bend the curve. No, no, I think that's an interesting way to think about it. I think people glamorize the startup world a lot that, yeah, suddenly you'll just hit this crazy trajectory, but uh, more often than not, that's not the case. Um, and just to, to, to touch a little bit, I guess, on what you're saying there about how about testing and learning, your global footprint now, I think you said before, you're in 54 countries, maybe more than that now? Yeah, 59, yeah. And are there... 
are you seeing different attitudes and different sort of, I guess, adoption behaviors around the world? Does does that change radically? Do people still fundamentally have the same sort of um, the same sort of blocker in their mind about like, oh, someone probably isn't going to want some, the thing I've got to give away? So, what we've discovered is that there are way more similarities between people and markets than differences. At the end of the day, we're all humans, and so exactly as you say. We tend to have the same concerns or the same things that excite us. The differences that we really see in the markets are much more around route to market, i.e. how do we most effectively access our audience and our community. And then we do also see some variants in terms of the mix of food versus non-food sharing. So Olio is being used an enormous amount in countries such as Mexico and Chile and Argentina. But there, we're being used primarily for non-food sharing rather than food sharing, whereas here in the UK, it's primarily food sharing. Okay, interesting. And and, and the non-food sharing that's happening in those countries, then, what, what's the driver there that, that's created that difference? Well, I think every market does have different values in terms of food and how much they value food, how much they waste food, and also how they consume food, whether you're sort Mm. of consuming food in quite an isolated manner versus in a more community-oriented manner. The isolated manner results in much more household food waste versus if you tend to live in larger families and larger communities. So that definitely impacts the, the food bit. And then there's obviously the competitive landscape as well. Uh, in terms of what other options are available for people. And so Olio's non-food offering just seems to have sort of struck a chord in those uh, Latin American countries. That's really interesting. What's on the horizon, Tessa? What are you working on right now? And what will you be really focusing on in in the years to come as as Olio keeps growing and, and developing? So right now we're working on the launch of a brand new feature, which we're super excited by which is called borrow. So essentially connecting neighbors to be able to lend and borrow everyday household items. So think cat carrier, drill, fancy dress costumes, books, pasta making machines, camping stoves, etc. So that will be launching in the next couple of months. Interesting. I've recently like moved flat and it, that's a time when you're just like, oh, I really need a drill yeah. or I and wish you only I, I, need we, it for we, an hour. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And you, you're you so tempted. I'm just like, oh, should I just go and buy it? Can I go on Amazon and buy one and it will turn up tomorrow yeah. that I'm then probably not going to use yeah. very much ever sit again. There. So the so, world's so precious. Yeah. Uh, sort of um, there's two types of waste. There's There's stuff that we waste because we throw it in the bin. And then the stuff that we waste because we're not using it. And a typical American home has 300,000 things in it. And I'm pretty sure a typical British home is not that far behind. And essentially, that is the world's precious resources trapped in your home, unable to be used by anyone else. Meanwhile, someone two doors down is buying that exact same item, perhaps from Amazon. Mm. uh, And we cannot continue to consume in this way so i'm not sure if uh, you're familiar with the concept of earth overshoot day or not but that's the day in the year in which humanity has used all the resources that the earth can replenish in a year and when it was first measured back in 1969 earth overshoot day was the 31st of december and so what that means is humanity used in a year 
what the Earth could replenish in a year. If you fast forward to last year, Earth Overshoot Day was the 22nd of August. And so what that means is that every single thing that every single one of us 7.5 billion people consumed after the 22nd of August last year was net-net depleted to the planet. And so at the moment, we're collectively living and consuming resources as if we have 1.75 planets, which obviously we do not. Uh, and so that's why I feel really, really passionately that we're going to have to completely rewrite our models of consumption and sharing of resources is going to have to be a real linchpin of that that new model. And that's why we're really excited to be launching Borrow. That's really interesting. And I get th- this seems to tie into I guess, something I'm trying to learn a lot more about at the moment, like Web 3.0 and sort of more decentralized ways of people organizing and communicating and, 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 and doing things where people aren't just going to default to go and buy something from one massive retailer, but they're going to use the technologies which are which are developing like yours to actually just solve that problem in a better way that's really interesting tessa i've i've, I've learned a, i've learned an awful lot here I've, I've got three three final questions to to ask you the first one what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in i think when i was growing up and early on in my career i was perhaps a little bit naive and idealistic i used to think that the world was a lot fairer than it is, and in particular, if I take the issue of gender, certainly growing up and then in my early career, I didn't personally directly experience any inhibitions on my aspirations or my career. But then as I got more senior and as I'm trying to challenge the status quo, I have realized that there is absolutely an enormous smashing kind of glass ceiling there and in particular uh, in the area of fundraising in the startup world so female founders get just one percent of all venture capital investment male founded businesses get 89 percent of the investment and mixed teams get the delta and that is insanely frustrating and infuriating and depressing and that has been a really really harsh wake-up call for me and it's come at precisely the time when I'm more motivated and have a greater sense of urgency than I ever have around the importance of my work and, and what I'm doing and I also look around at other entrepreneurs and I see that it is female founders it is founders who are from diverse backgrounds more broadly in terms of ethnicity or socioeconomic background, they're the ones who are out there solving the real problems facing humanity today. And yet they are struggling Mm. to access capital. And that's just deeply, deeply concerning for the future and the prospects of our species, quite frankly. Yeah, I was speaking to uh, a woman called June Angelides. She's a a VC now. And she was speaking about this exact problem where she said that um, female founders and founders of color, there's this trend to over mentor them. So talk to them, give them lots of advice. Just give us the bloody money. (laughs) We don't need more mentoring. We need cash. Yeah. I guess what you're saying is things aren't changing at any kind of speed when it comes to that. What what do you see as the things which need to, the barriers which need to break down or the, or the, the catalysts for change when it comes to that? The biggest barrier that I see is the lack of diversity amongst the gatekeepers of capital. 
And if I could sort of wave a magic wand, it would be to immediately make the sort of check writing level of investment mm. organizations to be representative. And overnight, we would see a radical transformation in terms of the types of businesses that are getting founded, uh, sorry, getting funded. Because right now, the businesses that are getting funded are the businesses that excite a very narrow group of people. It's their areas of passion that are getting funded and are getting built and mm. everything else is being neglected. And I believe that that is coming at an enormous cost to humanity because the biggest problems are not getting solved. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess m more and more and quite rightly, people are looking at the board rooms or the board tables of big businesses and saying they need to be more representative. But then this is kind of happening under the surface of there's loads of great ideas and great businesses out there which aren't being able to make valuable change because they're like suffering the same the same problem secondly tessa if this wasn't your mission of, of trying to tackle this 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 problem of, of food waste i guess in, in a parallel universe what would you be uh, focusing on the honest answer is i don't know but i think there's, there's a couple of areas i'm really interested in so anything to do with waste more broadly uh, for me is a just really really ripe area for disruption we cannot continue to waste our resources at the scale at which we're doing currently so i'm fascinated with anything to do with waste reduction and then i'm also really really interested in how on earth we can sustainably and healthily feed a world of 10 billion people and so i think the whole area of regenerative agriculture is a really really interesting one i don't know an enormous amount about it but everything i hear about it i find absolutely fascinating and i feel convinced that therein sort of lies the key to being able to feed us all and fix our health uh, and save the planet completely and finally if you could recommend one book for members of the journey further book club to read what would it be uh there's two books that i always recommend for anyone who is in the early stages of wanting to start something the first is the lean startup by eric rees that for us has just been a complete bible in terms of governing how we approach everything at olio and then the second one is a book called the mom test by rob fitzpatrick and that is really really powerful in terms of helping you figure out how to do that really early stage user research and then if i can be cheeky and give a okay. third book no, for do. anyone who wants to learn more about the climate crisis and the dire urgency of the situation then i really recommend a book by naomi klein called i think it's called capitalism versus the climate or the climate versus capitalism but that is a terrifying and riveting um, and energizing read hey, thank you for those recommendations and, and thank you, Tessa, for, for joining me on the podcast. I've, I've learned a lot there. It's a really inspiring story and a really a really powerful thing you're building with, with Olio, tackling a really, really important and pressing problem. Well, thank you for having me on. Lovely to chat to you today. Thank you for listening to the very end. I hope that means you found that episode insightful. If you want to learn more about this challenge that we face, do check out the episode I recorded with Emily, the co-founder of Oddbox. Oddbox rescue surplus food directly from farms and deliver fruit and veg boxes around the UK. Another really interesting business doing their bit to save the planet. If you have any feedback or thoughts, please do get in touch. My name is Nathan and you can email me at podcast at journeyfurther.com and I'll see you next week.